wrestling fans, happy February and welcome to another exciting, all new, stupendous edition of Charting the Territories. My name is Al Getz and I am joined this month, like I have been every other damn month, by my co-host. So please give it up for Mr. John Boucher. Well, that that is a deafening roar of applause <laughs> from himself. He, he he just gave a round of applause for himself. That yeah, is how it up. proud of his great work John is. How are you doing? You said uh, we were talking a little bit before we started recording. You mentioned that there were snow squalls in New York. Yeah, we had a snow squall. Yeah, we had a snow squall early, earlier today. I feel I'm glad it's 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 died down. Um, for I mean, the main reason I'm glad it died down is this is all go behind the a little behind the curtain here, uh, for, for the listeners. Um, first off, I want to, uh, wish my wife a happy birthday. It's going to be her birth by the time this airs. She will have had her birthday. I know she only listens to the first two or three minutes of each show just to, just to hear our voices. I don't blame and her then, one bit. And then goes back to listening to like NPR or whatever. But she just was like, oh, I listened to it a little bit. So right off the bat, happy birthday to my lovely wife, Sarah. Um, so behind the curtain, uh, she usually leaves the apartment while we record. Um, because according to her, I get nervous and annoying before we record. So she likes to just get out of my way. She goes over to her sister, uh, my sister-in-law's apartment, and they go hang out for you know, while we record. So I'm glad the snow squall has was all squalled out before she decided to, uh, you know, take off. But, uh, yeah. So. All right. Well, if you're listening, I, I don't, we're, I don't think we're at the two minute mark yet. So happy birthday, Sarah. <laughs> yes. Um, but this month on the podcast, okay. Now, Sarah, you can turn it off now and you can go tell John, Oh, I listened this month. We are looking at the first quarter of 1974. In Leroy McGurk's wrestling territory. Uh, this comes just short of a year after Bill Watts left the territory, which was early 1973. And then, as we talked about a couple of months ago on the podcast, Danny Hodge finishes up in December of 1973. So now with a new year comes a new top babyface. We'll tell you who he is, who he was feuding with, and we'll take a look at the rest of the roster using our exclusive spot ratings. We'll also look at the biggest feuds as measured by another exclusive statistic we have at Charting the Territories, and that is the FLW score, which stands for Feud Length in Weeks. And we're going to discuss one of the bigger feuds, which featured a stipulation match that, as best I can tell, had never been done before in the United States. It had been done in Canada, and I think that's a hint, but... Uh, we believe this is the first time this unique stipulation match, which has now uh, become pretty basic uh, stipulation match, uh, but this is the first time it was in the United States. We will also look at some of the moves that Rip Tyler made as he became Booker of the Territory, including bringing in a newcomer that had been a mainstay in Gulf Coast and the West Coast for several years. We'll run down the many tag teams in the territories, including an early appearance in the territory for Afa and Sika, plus a couple of wrestlers who would later become managers, Buck Robley and Pierre Martin. Pierre, of course, better known in the managerial ranks as Frenchie Martin. 
plus a manager slash general slash North Carolina Nazi hunter named Homer. <laughs> All that, and we'll talk about the latest episode of Stats 101 that came out a couple of weeks ago that counted down the three biggest feuds of Johnny Valentine's mid-Atlantic run in the mid-1970s. And John and I will each name one new thing we learned this month. And as always, we kick things off with shit John bought me off eBay. Now, a reminder to our listeners, every month, John is authorized to spend approximately $50 of my money buying me shit off eBay. So, John, I'm not much of a chef. Uh, have you ever baked a cake? For real. Have you ever um, baked a cake? No, I have never baked a cake. No, no. Neither, neither no. have I. No. I've never baked a cake. However... If I ever decide I want to, now I can not only bake a cake, but I'm going to be able to bake a cake that tastes like Hulkamania. Because the first item that John bought me off eBay this month is a cake tray uh, with the shaped in the mold of Hulk Hogan. So I can make yep. a Hulk Hogan cake. I guess, it can't, I guess it can't be a chocolate cake then. <laughs> Oh, oh, come on now. <laughs> oh, we got, oh. But uh, I'll post a picture of this uh, on Twitter. If you don't follow me on Twitter, uh, do so at Al Gets Wrestling. But yeah, it's a cake tray uh, shaped like Hulk Hogan. So I guess you put, you know, the batter in there and shove it in the oven. And 40 minutes or so later, you can uh, take a knife to Hulk Hogan's uh, extremities <laughs> and then eat them. Python. Whoa! Yep. Yeah, eat those pythons, baby. It's, so it, it's not life size because it is not twenty four inches, but it's a it's a pretty big size, you know, tray. I could I I don't think I could eat the whole cake by myself. But yeah, yeah that's the yeah. first item. So where where on God's green earth did you find this ridiculous item uh, on eBay? Did you just type in? Yeah, I want to bake. I want Al to be able to bake a cake shaped like Hulk Hogan. Could you help me out? I think I don't like to give away all my my search secrets uh you know because i don't i don't want other people to buy the shit i would be buying you but i think i i was for whatever reason uh i was going down a like kitchen items like wrestling related kitchen items i was wondering but oh maybe there's like some fun uh you know steiner brothers uh, salt and pepper shakers or something you know something like that and i eventually got to the uh, hulk hogan cake pan so that's how it's going wrestling kitchen searching so Wrestling kitchen like items. There you go. So there, there's yep. a little window into how John <laughs> finds me all the shit that he finds me. But the yep. other item, there were two items this month. First was the Hulk Hogan cake tray. And second is a the Dallas Wrestling Gazette. And this is a, it's an eight-page newspaper that uh, I believe was distributed for free in and around Dallas, Texas, I don't know how long this lasted, how many issues there are. This one is dated September 1972. Uh, the It's published monthly by editor Ken Taylor. Uh, and the photographer is Joe Kaczynski. And uh, inside there are articles on Johnny Valentine, John L. Sullivan, uh, Stan Stasiak, Boris Malenko. There's some advertisements. So they were getting oh. some uh, some local businesses to foot the bill for this. And there's also a list of where fans could find 
this newspaper and they actually had quite a, a nice little distribution. You can find it in right. at four locations in Dallas, a few places in Oak Cliff, Texas, Plano, Texas, Garland, Texas, Irving's, Texas. You could find it at Lulu's restaurant, Lee Lou, <laughs> Lee Lou's restaurant and Omar's drive-in. So apparently in Irving, when you open up a business, it has to, you know, be named after you. Yeah. You also get it in Mesquite, yeah, Texas, Grand great, Prairie, but... Texas, Pleasant Grove, Farmers Branch, Richardson, and Carrollton. They also have ratings. They have top 10 ratings for Texas, American, and World. And in this case, American refers to the American heavyweight title that uh, Fritz von Erich had. The Texas rankings yeah. look to be a combination of both East Texas and West Texas as Terry Funk and Ricky Romero and Murdoch are listed. And they're in Amarillo at this time. Uh, whereas wrestlers such as Stan Stasiak, Red Bastine, Bearcat, Dory Dixon, and Jose Lothario are based in East Texas. So it's sort of a composite of ratings for the state of Texas. But what we should do huh. is I should do some spot ratings for this time period, which was uh, September 1972, and compare them to the ratings in this newspaper and see if they line up. Wow. So do you know do you know anything about uh, Ken Taylor or about the shelf life of the Dallas Wrestling Gazette? I don't. I have a few, uh, only like two or three uh, different issues from around that same same time period, maybe even the same year. Um, I don't know how long it was around for when it started, when when it uh, you know stops publishing. But I, I love the like the newspaper format of it. I think that's so cool. And like you know, I, just, I think Wrestling News did that for a while too. I just love the the newsprint. And I saw Johnny Valentine on the cover, and I figured that'd be appropriate for this month's episode. Yeah, because uh, it is February, the month of the month of lovers, the month of Valentine's Day, and of course, uh, uh, the Stats One Hundred and One podcast that dropped earlier this month was Valentine's Day themed in that we talked about Johnny Valentine. This month on this podcast, we're going to talk about 1974 in the Oklahoma slash Louisiana territory owned and operated by Leroy McGurk. Uh, looking at the rankings for the quarter, the top stars in the territory, and this is based on their week by week spot rating and how many weeks out of the three-month period, they were in the territory. But in order, they are, at number one was Ken Mantell. Number two was Skandor Akbar. Then there was the team of Klondike Bill and Luke Brown, followed by Tank Morgan and Bob Sweetan. And if you look at the spot ratings, which you can see in full on the blog at www.chartingtheterritories.com, the other main eventers in the territory, besides those already mentioned, are the McGuire twins, who came in for a few weeks, Benny and Billy, Dan Crawford, Grizzly Smith, and half of a tag team, Dante, of the Dante and Mephisto tag team, qualified as a main eventer because his spot rating was just above a .80, where his partner, Mephisto, was just be below that with a uh, somewhere in the high 70s, so he was an upper mid-carder. Uh, they had a couple of singles matches right as they finished up, and I think Dante was in you know the main event in a B-town, and Mephisto was in the semi, so that affected uh, the average just enough to uh, put one in the main eventer category and one in the upper mid-carder category. And of course, this version of Dante and Mephisto were Joe Turner and uh, Dennis Condry under a mask very early in his career. Oh. Have you ever seen 
early footage of Dennis Condry before, let's say, Southeastern, John? No, I have not. I have not. Yeah, I, and I don't think I have either. I know he worked. Uh, so Joe Turner, uh, I believe he was, they were brother-in-law or they, they Dennis married someone who was a direct relative of Turner. But Turner was most uh, associated with a guy by the name of Bill Bowman. The two of them tagged up regularly. They were working in Mid-Atlantic earlier in 1973, and Dennis uh, came with them and was working with them. Uh, when they the three of them all left Mid-Atlantic right at the same time, Bill Bowman went to All South. Uh, well, he either went to All South or Georgia Championship Wrestling. I forget which one. Uh, and Turner and Condry came here for a few months as Dante and Mephisto, and they were managed by Bobby Whitlock. But back to the top of the rankings and ratings. That's Ken Mantell. He's basically uh, serving as the de facto replacement for Danny Hodge. He beat Hodge to win the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title in December 1973 in Jackson, Mississippi. And then he began a big feud with Skandor Akbar, who in storyline is credited as the man who ran Danny Hodge out of the territory. Hodge, of course, goes to Florida for a little over a year and won't be back till uh, the spring of 1975. Uh, so they... Him and Akbar had been teaming up, as we talked about previously. The two split up. Akbar turned heel. They had a brief feud as Hodge was finishing up, and Akbar was winning the blow-off matches in many of the towns uh, in late November and early December. So Ken Mantell now takes Hodge's title and takes his feud as well. Um, their feud had an FLW score of 626 during the quarter, wow. FLW stands for feud length in weeks, and it's meant to approximate the length of the feud across the territory. If you've listened to our previous podcasts, we've noted that anything above a three generally indicates a big feud. Remember, we're talking about a weekly loop. So, yeah, if it has more than a three, that means it's having rematches in many towns uh, night after night. So a FLW of 6.26 is pretty high and indicates that they had a big feud throughout the territory. And here's the thing. Akbar isn't really a junior heavyweight. I believe there are yeah. a couple of occasions where they bill it as a title match for the world junior heavyweight title. But for the most part, these are non-title matches. And this is more of a, oh. you know, a, a revenge feud, a blood feud. Gotcha. But Akbar, you know, he was short, but he was thick. And, yeah. and so I really don't know what his actual weight was and, and what his build weight was compared and how he looked compared to some of the other wrestlers that are billed as junior heavyweights. But I guess they figured it was a hard sell to pass him off as a full on junior heavyweight. So they would feud in non non title matches across the territory. Um, but this was definitely a big feud, John. No other feud had an FLW above two. Oh, wow. But there is yeah. one feud that's worth mentioning because uh, it involves a wrestler who spent almost all of his career in Canada or on the West Coast. So this might be the only time we have the chance to bring up his name. But that same wrestler brought a unique stipulation match with him that he is credited with inventing. Uh, and he oh, invented yeah. it in Calgary in 1972. So, John, tell mm -hmm. our listeners who I'm talking about and what that stipulation match is. Well, of course, we're talking about Cowboy Dan Crawford and the 
stepladder match, as he referred to it initially. Um, I love the it's great listening to to to, to Crawford talk about the ladder match because the way he he describes it, you know, there's so much psychology in it that is sort of lacking in what you know with the ladder matches today i hate to, to to trash modern wrestling um but you know there's he he describes it like a book which is a great i love cheesy wrestling metaphors and analogies like the ladder is the book but it's what's inside you know that's the story opening the ladder you know and he you know he basically came up with this idea to to raise his profile in the promotion and it, with with Stu Hart and he pitched the idea to Stu Stu freaking loved it uh, to the point where he gave Crawford like complete autonomy with the booking allowing him to totally bypass the Booker at the time I think it was Dave Rule was the Booker and Stampede um, and the way he lays out the angle with with the Torquemada and Stampede like the first three weeks was a tag team match like Crawford and Lenny Hurst. Uh, who will be familiar to old school WWF fans, Lenny Hurst, against Kamada and Suji Sito. And in these matches, Kamada would only join the match and come in the ring if Crawford was having a rough time on his back on the mat, like down and out. And as soon as Crawford would make his comeback, Kamada would tag out to his partner. So they do this over the course of several weeks to make it really clear that Tor Kamada wants no part of Dan Crawford whatsoever. So then on TV... Crawford challenges Kamada to get him in the ring, and he says, hey, well, what I'll do, I'll give you $5,000 to stay in the ring with me. We'll hang a bag of money from the lights, uh, you know, and put a ladder outside the ring. That way you're not going to run anymore because you're going to stay in the ring and fight me because you want the money. Uh, and Crawford you know, describes it himself as like, you, you, you ha- it's like you're hanging a bone for a dog. The idea of dangling the money there, you know, the greed in the bad guy's eyes was part of the storyline. And he, you know, he envisioned this, this feud, this program, whatever, having chapters, you know, in the first match, Crawford would win then Kamada would come back, challenge Crawford to a rematch and Kamada would put up money. And Crawford, of course, you know, hesitate at first, then agree telling, and he tell the, tell the audience on TV that he would, you know, throw the money he won out to the crowd, which he does after winning the rematch. You know, it's mostly mostly ones and fives in that bag, but the visual of the money flying around like like Christmas snow is beautiful. Um, and with you know with the fans thinking he's going to throw the money to them, the crowd gets so involved in the psychology of the match and they get super into it. So it grows to like five thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand, eventually the North American title. So he's able to get like a month out of this feud, selling all all over Western Canada. Just to, you know, it's it's just great great it's a great idea, and, yeah, I, and- I love hearing him talk about it. And it's interesting because the the stipulation, the way the match takes place is is very different than what we think of today. How it works is one wrestler puts up the money. It's not like they each put up half and it's about and it's winner take all. It's not like the promotion puts it up. One wrestler puts the money up and then the job of the other wrestler is to use the ladder to get it. And that's the only way he can win the match is by getting the bag of money. Whereas the wrestler who put up the money, he's basically on defense. His job is to stop the other wrestler and he can win by pinning him like, you know, regular wrestling rules. So it's, you have one wrestler on offense and one on defense and the way they did it in the McGurk territory, it played out pretty similarly, except the way it started was 
uh, Crawford, if you look at our spot ratings, particularly in the fourth quarter of 73, Crawford was a mid-carder, upper mid-carder. He's a push entity, but he's definitely not at the level of Bob Sweetan. And he was uh, calling for a match with Sweetan, and Sweetan would say, no, you're beneath me. It's not worth my time, blah, 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 blah. And this is how Crawford would then, you know, say, well, uh, how about I make it worth your while by putting up this money? And of course, that uh, piqued Bob's interest. And so the first match, uh, Crawford would you know, win and then Sweetan wanted a rematch. So he put up the money and they did the same thing that they did with Kamada in Stampede, where Crawford would say, if I win, I'll throw some money to the crowd. And he would win in some towns and do it. And then the third week, they would have Crawford put up what was left of what he won from Sweetan, minus what he threw into the crowd. <laughs> yeah. And what's interesting is that in every town in the McGurk territory, Sweetan won the blow off. Uh, it's either a one, two or three match series, depending on the town. But it also was as Crawford was finishing up. So I think this was him coming up with an idea to get himself some main events and some main event level paydays on his way out of the territory. I'll happily put Sweetan over at the end, but let's do this so I, you know, so I can get some uh, main event paydays out of it, let alone whatever he might have pocketed from the money that was in the bag. <laughs> Wonder if wrestlers ever yeah, did really... that when they put, you know, a bag of money out there if a wrestler ever while miming throwing it to the crowd, like you know, as he as he reaches in the bag, he's actually stuffing some in his pocket, and then he takes some out and throws yeah. it to the crowd, stuffs some in his pocket. But you're talking about the ladder matches of today. Did you see the Sammy Guevara, Cody Rhodes ladder match from uh, not too long ago uh, on the AEW? I did. Yeah. Holy crap. I, I mean, dumb. again, we, you know, we can talk about how, you know, it's sports entertainment now. It's different. It's not the same. But what they did was an incredible display of athleticism and performance. It was oh, yeah. absolutely yeah, breathtaking. Yeah. Um and and a very high degree of difficulty on some of the moves they did and they yep. executed them yep. perfectly. So, yeah. well, you know, whatever we yep. think about it, we have to be impressed with uh, how it looks. And, uh, you know, and of course now, uh, recently, you know, last week the news broke that Cody is no longer with All Elite Wrestling and perhaps might be uh, bound to return to his old stomping grounds of the World yeah. Wrestling Entertainment promotion which is just fascinating yeah. on so many levels. But yeah, a much different yeah. ladder match. And of course, uh, back in these days, they were, as as you mentioned it, Dan called it a step ladder match. And in some cases, yeah. it legitimately was a step ladder, not the very high ladders we see in the WWE and AEW today. Yeah, the ladders look like sort of like the ladders like your grandfather would have in the garage, like those old wooden ones, the thing you put, you put the paint can almost, you know? It's like, it's like those kind of like ladders. It's really, it's, it's it's crazy going looking back at some of the old photos. They just like old Ricky Wooden wooden ladders. You could see like I could imagine like Stu Hart driving it down from Hart House in the back of his truck. Here you go. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's what Crawford is best remembered for in wrestling as being the inventor of the ladder match. But and of course, this is not Phil Lafon. I'm sure most of our listeners are aware there were two Dan Crawfords. Uh, the one who teamed with Doug Furness came along later. Uh, but this is the original wrestler cowboy dan crawford the canadian cowboy okay. and whatever he's known for in the ring uh the things he's done in the in his local community outside the ring are are definitely worth mentioning as well he's a philanthropist uh as a matter of oh, fact yeah. there's an article from the cochran today 
website, which was powered by the Cochrane Eagle newspaper, uh, where he was planning three events to raise up to $200,000 for local nonprofits. And this was in February, 2021. Uh, so, and, and this is, you know, with, with, uh, the pandemic still, you know, in full force at this time, he was really looking to do things to raise money for some local nonprofits. Uh, yeah, and it's, it seems like he's uh, done a lot of good for himself after his wrestling oh, career yeah. ended. Yeah. Um, and uh, at one point, he uh, he almost didn't survive to uh, live that oh, long Jesus. and to do all <laughs> yeah. these things because uh, and we'll post. We'll post this article on Twitter, but there's an article from the October 6, 1984 edition of the Vancouver Sun detailing the time that Crawford was held hostage and shot while working as a prison guard. <laughs> yeah, this is a real article. Is this isn't something from a wrestling magazine uh, that no, was written under a ghost name. Like so, it. John, can you uh, summarize uh, this wacky story about the prison hostage taking involving yeah, Dan I'll, I'll give, I'll give a I'll give the listeners the Cliff Notes version because it's a little long and uh, complicated. But basically, he, you know, this is like 84 uh, after after one of his many retirements or hiatuses from wrestling. Um, and he's working part time as a security guard. And his job that he has is a search master, which is a cool, cool job title, which is exactly what it sounds like. He's the guy tasked with searching for contraband uh, on prisoners in the prison. Um, so there's like a lockdown because they get a tip that someone has smuggled in a gun, uh, which ends up being correct <laughs> because uh, a prisoner held Prophet and three other guys hostage, uh, three other uh, prison guards. Um, eventually, all like the, the the other three get away, so it's just Prophet who he like he, he drags him down somewhere, strips him naked. Uh, you know, and they're, you know, he, he demands his release, the prisoner. Uh, at some point, you know, he shoots around into Crawford's arms to show him that he's serious. Uh, and Crawford was like, okay, man, do whatever you got to do. And the hostage taker is like, oh, I'll, I'm going to keep you around. You seem like you got balls. It's like, okay. So whatever, whatever Crawford's doing here seems to be working. Um, but and it's like, and he's just lying there bleeding. So his first instinct is just to lie there and, and, you know, sort of just not not play dead, but just lie there, be still. Sees the blood start pooling around him, so he starts freaking out. So he's like, you know, sticking his thumb and his fingers in the bullet hole, trying to stop the bleeding. And after a while, nothing's happening. No one's coming to rescue him. He's drawing hearts on the floor, putting his wife and kids' initials in them. So if they see this, they'll know he's thinking of them before he died. Crazy shit. So he's there for like seven hours. Finally, the hostage negotiators get involved, uh, and Crawford gets out after crawling up the stairs and someone sliding him keys. And it's you know, but it's like seven hours he's lying there bleeding on the floor. Uh, absolutely, absolutely insane story. And the craziest thing is, like a couple months later, he's back in Calgary doing ladder matches with the Honky Tonk Man. You know, it's like, it's just like an absolutely insane story. Yeah, and we've actually got uh, some YouTube footage of. Uh, one of those matches between Dan Crawford and Honky oh, yeah. Tonk yeah. Wayne uh, from June 1986. Okay. It's on YouTube. We'll post a uh, link to that on Twitter. So another match uh, from earlier, a few years earlier. This was July 1973, where Crawford wrestled against the stopper, Archie Goldie. Stopper, baby. 
Yeah. So uh, we will post all those links on Twitter. I'm at Al Gets Wrestling. John is at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. But yeah, Crawford uh, invented a unique stipulation match that is still used to this day. Survived uh, a job as the search master. I wonder if that's where <laughs> Kevin Sullivan got the idea to become the taskmaster. <laughs> and of course, years ago, when I uh, first learned HTML coding, I worked as the webmaster for a company uh, in Asheville, North Carolina in the mid 90s. So uh, from taskmaster to webmaster to search master, <laughs> there's all sorts of masters going on in wrestling. Yeah. But a little yeah, further yeah. down the cards are the upper mid carters. And in the first quarter of 1974, these wrestlers all had an average weekly spot rating between 0. 0.60 and 0. 0.80. And they are babyfaces Arman Hussein. Lorenzo Parente, Bill Cody, and uh, Bill Cody uh, is a frequent tag team partner of Crawford in Canada. So that's where the connection is. Uh, and also uh-huh. Ken Lucas is here briefly. And on the heel side, we have Stan Kowalski, Kim Duck, who is Tiger Chung Lee, Rip Tyler, Ronnie and Donnie Bass with their Ma, Ma Bass, oh. Mephisto, Siegfried Stonka, and Rip Tyler's storyline brother, Randy Tyler. Now, you can see the promotion was pretty heel-heavy at the time, and this led to a good number of heel-versus-heel matches. Uh, Dante and Mephisto are actually feuding with Sweetan and Stanka, and Rip Tyler began a feud with North American champion Tank Morgan. Uh, We mentioned Tank Morgan a while back ago on this podcast. Usually had very brief runs in territories because he may or may not have been a contract killer who would take an assignment and then get himself booked in the local wrestling territory until he finished his job and then leave. But he was actually here for a while and he got a nice push. He was the first wrestler to be crowned North American champion after Watts had left. Watts left in early 73 and they didn't fill the vacant title until September or October where Tank Morgan won one of those tournaments that wasn't really a tournament, but just a series of matches that were billed as tournament matches. And whoever won and was still in the territory at the end of it all would then square off in the finals. And I believe uh, Morgan ended up beating Dewey Robertson, the future missing link in the finals to win that title. But here, Rip Tyler, who, as we mentioned, is the booker. And prior to him becoming the booker, he was a, again, he was a pushed guy, but he wasn't really above the upper mid-card level. But once he gets that book, baby, he moves up the cards in an amazing coincidence. He also gets himself a manager. He says, hey, I'm going to push myself. I'm going to push my brother. I'm going to dethrone the North American champion, even though we're both heels. And I'm going to give myself a manager. And that ends up being Homer Odell, who we're going to talk about a little bit later. But we mentioned rips spot rating he's in the upper mid carter category for the quarter as a whole Uh, and this is taking the average of his week by week spot ratings during the quarter but if you go to chartingtheterritories.com you can see uh on our spot ratings chart that from january through march his spot rating is increasing steadily in the first week of january it's a 0.65 but in the month of march it hovers in the mid 80s So that is clear indicative of a wrestler getting a push up the cards when their spot rating increases because the spot rating literally measures their spot on the card. So this is Rip 
giving himself a nice push as Booker, which is something many, many Bookers have done over the years. And I think we've mentioned on this podcast in the past that it's sometimes fun to play. Guess who the Booker is when a wrestler who's a career (laughs) mid-carder all of a sudden uh, is the the top babyface in the territory and wins all the titles. That might be a hint that he's the Booker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But what's interesting, as I'm doing these ratings, and especially now that I'm doing these top rankings where I rank wrestlers and I rank them both as singles and tag teams in the same ordered list, what's interesting is for many territories at many times, there are more full-time heel tag teams than there are full-time regular babyface tag teams. And this got me to thinking as to why that happened and and John before I uh say what I think it is do, do you have any thoughts hmm. on uh, even if there's the same number of wrestlers there's you know if there's an even number of heels and baby faces as far as regular tag teams there tend to be more on the heel side huh yeah I don't know why is that tell me what you what you I, discovered what I think is it has to do with the whole morality play of good against evil and evil always having the the numbers game. Think about the horsemen. Mm, they would always yep. do those four-on-one or four-on-two attacks uh, until yep. all the baby faces banded together to fight them off. So I, I think there's a similar, uh, you know, uh, pl- thing at play here, that the idea is that two wrestlers that have teamed together and know each other very well are up to no good, and the local babyface maybe has to go through a variety of partners before he finally finds the one yeah. to beat them. And, and of course, this also usually works well with guys like Haystack Calhoun or Andre the Giant or even Dusty Rhodes yeah. when they're brought into the territory for a week. It's often to be that partner for the local top babyface to finally, you know, get rid of yep. this heel tag team. So it's not that the two of them together are cheating, although as heels, they usually cheat, but just by them being a cohesive unit, they have an unfair advantage over any yep. one babyface wrestler. And they use that to mess with them until the babyface yep. can finally find the right guy. So that's what I there think go. is going on as part of that, uh, you know, long-term morality play. Yeah. Um, and, sense. you know, here we see that with uh, with Rip teaming with his brother, Randy Tyler, uh, as a yep. you know cohesive tag team uh, and, you know, facing some of the top baby faces. And Rip and Randy both came from Gulf Coast. They're both uh, probably best associated with runs in Gulf Coast wrestling. And another wrestler that Rip likely brought in that he knew from Gulf Coast was Armand Hussein. Yeah. And Armand Hussein is an interesting character because oh yeah, we don't really know a whole lot about his real life. In fact, there's even some confusion over his real name. Yeah. I believe I, I believe uh... it's Mike something. He also in in you know in wrestling, he was portrayed as a graduate of Oxford University and he spoke with a British <laughs> accent. And I've seen a few articles that seem to be written on a more personal level that that claim that that was legitimate but at the same time i've seen some sources that say he was born and raised in texas and dropped out of high school yep Yep. but that he would even if that was true he would still put on the british accent in the dressing room 
put yeah, it out for the yeah. boys. So it, do you have any it, idea what is fact and what is fiction regarding his upbringing and his background? Or is are you just I, seeing the same uh, mixed, you know, info that I am? Same mixed in, same well different mixed info, but okay. mixed info. Nothing 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 confirmed. It's funny. I I, I did like a a dive on him like on ancestry.com and <laughs> It was funny. I found the, the the birthday I found on for him is July thirty first, nineteen forty six, which is a kayfabe uh, birth date because that could not be his birth date. Well, I, but I think what I know what his exact birth year is. We get into that in, in a minute. Um, uh, yeah, because the first results I, I found for him were from like the Midwest in fifty nine. So he wouldn't probably wouldn't have made his debut at thirteen years old. No, um, probably not. Yeah, and there's a, there's a thread about him on one of the uh, wrestling classics message board where uh, a friend of his, Jeff Cunningham, talks about seeing, you know, his actual driver's license and having that that 1946 date on it. So, but I, I would imagine it'd be easier to uh, to cheat that back 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 then than it, than it is now. And the two names I remember: Mike Barber and Mike Harmon being the names. Whatever it is, we we believe his first name was Mike, and we're not quite sure. Yeah what his last name was. And he was either born in 1933 or 1946, which is a big difference. And it's interesting <laughs> that his, that he actually, he had a driver's license with the fake birth year on it. That's like, it's like on Seinfeld <laughs> where uh, Jerry would, uh, he wore, he always claimed he wore a size 32, but he actually wore a 34, but he like changed the size <laughs> on, on the, on the label. <laughs> but one thing we know for sure was something he did in January of 1970. And this is where Hussein and another wrestler named Sam Lumumba, who we believe is had the real name of Sam Lewis, uh, they claimed that the Olympic Auditorium discriminated against black wrestlers. Yes. So there's an article from the Los Angeles Times. I'll read the first couple of paragraphs. Two black wrestlers say they have had to go on welfare because the Olympic Auditorium and other major arenas throughout the state refuse to give them main events. We had to go on welfare or we would have starved, said Arman Hussein, 33, known as the Sudan Terror. So there you go. In 1970, he's, his age is listed in this newspaper as 33, which seems yeah. more like his legitimate age, which would have made him born in 37 and not 46, which also meant his first pro matches would have been when he was 22, because you said they were in 59, right? Yep. Yep. So yeah, that yep. seems to make more sense. But here's what's interesting. He said, Hussein said he made only $600 wrestling last year, and that his partner, Sam Lumumba, 31, received only $100. Yep. So what is, let, let's, let's Google this real quick. What is $600 in 1970 worth today let's see what we can find uh one dollar is the equivalent of seven dollars and 25 cents today so six hundred dollars would have been about forty five hundred dollars in today's money so that's definitely not a lot so the question is that we always have to ask ourselves when wrestlers make claims are they true are they believable and and really for many years we had no way of knowing this uh and in particular the southern california territory is one there's not a lot of records for we do have records from the olympic auditorium we do have records from 
Uh, San Bernardino, which was run weekly. Uh, Bakersfield was run regularly. San Diego, not so much. Uh, but there's really not a whole lot. We can't even really tell how many nights they ran a week. What we do know, they ran the Olympic Auditorium every Wednesday for one of those hybrid TV tapings. So it was aired live on TV. And I think the main events were were dark. Uh, which was similar to how Portland did it and I think how uh, Fort Worth did it at some time as well, where where the first four matches read like a TV taping where it's, uh, you know, enhancement matches and maybe one or two competitive matches. But then the two main events are non-televised and you have to go to the arena live. But they ran that every Wednesday. And at this point in time, they were running every about every other Friday night at the Olympic for a house show and they're drawing several thousand and maybe even more than several thousand. I think between like seven and 10,000 was the norm for the Friday night shows. Whereas the attendance for Wednesdays was usually in the three to 4,000 range. As I was alluding to, we didn't have tools to measure was Hussein getting main events. Was he, you know, unfairly not being put in them. How can we measure this? Well, I mean, I invented a statistic that literally measures a wrestler's placement on the card. So what I decided to do was go back to Hussein's two stints in NWA Hollywood, one in 1968 and one in 1969. And for each, I picked a, an eight-week period of time, and I calculated Hussein's spot rating as well as the number of bookings per week that he had. And I compared those numbers to the rest of the wrestlers working the territory. The idea being, if Hussein is not in the main events, let's look at the wrestlers that are. And can we make the case that Hussein is as good or would have drawn as well as those wrestlers? So we're going to start with 1968. John, I'm going to need your help uh, with some of these wrestlers and their place in the world in 1969. But Hussein's spot rating in uh, 1968 was a 0.38, which puts him as a preliminary wrestler. Preliminary wrestlers generally have a spot of 0.40 or below. So he's at the high end of it, but he's still considered a preliminary wrestler. The main eventers in the territory at the same time are Buddy Austin, Bobo Brazil, and Freddie Blassie. So John... In 1968, <laughs> do we consider Armand Hussein to be on equal footing with Buddy Austin, Bobo Brazil, and Freddie Blassie? I, I would not, no. I will, yeah, no, me. neither would I. And that's not a knock on Hussein at all. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a pretty not. stacked no, no. Uh, main eventer. And going a little bit further down the cards, let's look at the upper mid-carders. You have the Medics, and I believe this version of the Medics are Tony Gonzalez and Luis Hernandez. You have Pepper Gomez. You have John Tolos, and you have the Alaskan Jay York. A little further down yeah. in the mid-carter, you have Art Boom Boom Mahalik, Skull Murphy, Ricky Romero, Pedro Morales, and Rocky Montero. Yeah. So I, I could see Hussein being on par with, with those mid-carters. And like I said, his spot rating, while technically below the threshold for a preliminary wrestler, it's right on the border. So he's, you know, he's in the same ballpark as a Rocky Montero or a, I guess, Ricky Romero. How old is he in 69? Do you know, John? I did not. Not off the top of my head, no. 
Yeah, I, I don't quite think he was as big a star in California at, at the time. So, you know, he could have been a little bit higher yeah. on the cards, but not a main eventer. Now, the other thing we looked at was the number of bookings per week. And I will say this is based on a very small sample size, but it is actually very evident that Hussein was booked on less shows than the other regulars in the territory, than most of the other regulars in the territory at the time. And that fits in with what we said in the past about preliminary wrestlers. They're not booked as often. He is working a lot of the Wednesday TVs, but as far as the house shows on Friday nights at the Olympic and in San Bernardino, he is not always booked on them, whereas most of the other wrestlers are. Uh, a year later in 1969, his spot rating uh, is not different, from, not too different from what it had been a year before. It's a 0.39. So again, he's right on that border of preliminary wrestler and mid-carder. But the main eventers in 1969 are Mil Mascaras, Bull Ramos, and Black Gordman, or Blackie Gordman. Yeah. So again, John, is uh. Arman Hussein in 1969 on the level of Mil, Bull, or Blackie? Probably not, no. No. So he shouldn't be in main events. Uh, I, I, I think it sucks how little money he got paid. And again, he definitely has less bookings per week than the other regulars in the crew. And his friend uh, Sam Lamumba, who's part of this lawsuit with him, has even less. He is barely getting booked on, uh, on, on the bigger shows in the Southern California territory. Now, a little further down the cards, we have... A guy named Roger Brown, who I believe played football for the Rams and was wrestling in the offseason. Uh, then you have Chris Markoff. Then you have one of the medics, Alfonso Dantes, Freddie Blassie, Mike Riker, who's Mike York, Chief White Eagle, Sir Albert Lansdowne, Crusher Miller, and Francisco Flores. So again, looking at that list, Hussein could have been on par with Mike York or Francisco Flores, or Chief White Eagle, but certainly not anyone, you know, at the level of Blassie or Mascadus or Gordman or anybody like that. So, yeah, you know, he's probably slotted fairly, given the crew in the territory at the time. It sucks that the money for the undercards was no good. Like I mentioned, the Olympic is drawing really well for those Every other week, Friday night house shows, 8,000, 9,000, 10,000 fans. And we don't know how many other nights a week they're running. If we, if we assume that they're only running TV on Wednesdays and Hussein is working that a lot, TVs are generally unpaid or often a very, very low base pay for everybody just to work the show. Yeah. I wonder, you know, I was looking at that, you know, that article and sort of not, not obviously not as I wasn't looking as into his his, his uh, West Coast bookings as, as deeply as you did, but I was wondering, I wonder how much of that in his in his mind was. You know, this is right after he came off working in like the uh, run on the East Coast, the WWWF was you know where he was more of a pushed entity, as you as we say, you know he was teaming with Bruno. Yeah, it, you know, it's hard to things. slot the baby faces that weren't, you know, lifers in the WWF 
the guys that just came in for six month, you know, nine month runs as baby faces, you know, they're going to get their matches teaming with those top guys, but then other times they're not. So, you know, it's really, really hard to see. Yeah, but yeah, Hussein is used to having higher profile matches on the East Coast. He had some really big runs uh, in the Northwest I believe. So yeah. yeah, this is just him uh coming to a territory where they've got some really top talent up top and 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 those are guys that uh appeal very strongly to the uh population in Southern California. Uh and any argument that it has to do with the color of his skin sadly is offset by the fact that Bobo is there in 1968 and is you know, clearly yeah. slotted where he should be as a main eventer. Um, the Olympic Auditorium denied these charges. Uh, they said, oh, Hussein said the minimum pay for a main event is $1,500 back then. Uh, huh. But the Olympic, uh, Mike LaBelle is the manager of the Olympics, said the charges are completely untrue. Uh, here's a quote. They're saying that they are not being given work because they are black really burns me up, LaBelle said. The reason they have not been given main event matches is that they are not of main event caliber. LaBelle said there are not too many black wrestlers in this country to choose from, but the Olympic tries to have at least one Negro on the card every time there is a wrestling show. And that's a direct quote from this 1970 article. Uh, And looking at the cards, I don't know that that's necessarily true, that they always had one on every show. And and if and if they did, that's not a good thing. That's not not necessarily something to be proud of. Is that they felt like they had to do it. Um, yeah. But I think it's fair to say that Hussein is positioned in 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 the proper place. And it's hard when you go from one territory to another. Uh, when you're you know if you're a big fish in a small pond, if you're main eventing in a small territory, and then all of a sudden. Uh, going to a big territory, put lower on the cards. But Hussein, like you said, he had a, a decent run in the Northeast. And a lot of times that can get into guys' heads and make them think yeah. that they're, you know, uh, they need to be in main events everywhere they go. And that's just not always the case. Now, there's not a lot of footage uh, from Hussein in his prime years, but we do have some YouTube footage of him later on and i'm trying to pull it up right now uh my microsoft word seems to be acting up on me but uh Uh yeah no there's a match of him versus kerry von eric from world class in 1982 and then there's a promo from a few years later from texas all-star wrestling featuring al madrill armand hussein and the mighty zulu ron pope yes talk about an interesting uh an interesting trio uh al madrill what's interesting about that really interesting about that clip sorry to interrupt but like this because you hear so many guys talking about working with uh hussein uh earlier in his career 60s and 70s how he would never drop the british accent even riding in the car um in the locker room always had the british accent and here he is in like what is this mid 80s no no trace of a british accent here he just just sounds like a sounds like a regular guy which i yeah. thought was pretty funny well, and, and, and of course, uh, he was part of H&H with Gary Hart in, in uh, Texas oh, yeah. in the mid-80s. That's probably what a lot of our listeners best remember him for. But he was wrestling, you know, since 1959. And you found an article, John, from the June 1967 issue of Wrestling World. And it is called oh, yeah. A Little Bit of Mecca. And this <laughs> is uh, written by Lou Sahadi. 
Uh, yeah. And uh, this is uh, this follows the things that we have always heard, but can't confirm about Hussein, that he was a highly educated Sudanese who says he likes the unusual and he fits the mm. part as unique and different with shaven head, cultured British accent and custom clothes. And this article talks a little bit about his uh, debut in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, as you alluded to earlier. So, John, tell our listeners what, what his uh, his introduction to the fans in the East Coast was. Let me pull it up here. I got it. My, 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 my Microsoft Word is uh, on the fritz now. Hold on. My machine, my machine here, my computer, my laptop here, did uh, earlier today, it, uh, it auto-updated my, my, my Mac OS, you know? Uh-huh. So it, 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 everything's been a little little weird since I've done that. So it's a little, sorry, apologize for that. Um, but yeah, so the story in the WWF, uh, you know, it was Bruno was being uh, interviewed on TV and uh, our, our friend Tank Morgan snuck up behind Bruno. Boom. Hits Bruno with a chair. And uh, Hussein is, is waiting from a corridor where he springs into action, speeds toward the ring, Chase Tank Morgan out of the arena, which endeared him to Eastern Matt fans. That was his. Uh, that was his intro. That was his. Uh, that's what led to the big uh, teaming with Bruno and him being a, a beloved babyface on the East Coast. And it's amazing that in in talking about something that happened in the you know a different territory seven years earlier than 1974 that. Uh, not only is Hussein there, but so is Tank Morgan. Uh, they're both there in 67 yeah. and they're both here in 74. And that's what always amazes me about doing research and finding, you know, how so many wrestlers were in the same place at the same time as as wrestlers they were linked with later. I was looking at uh, some old Memphis stuff and, you know, and there's a very early tag match. It was Ricky Morton and somebody else against Bobby Eaton and somebody else. You know, and so this is, yeah. you know, six, seven <laughs> years before rock and roll midnights, uh, they're on opposite sides of a tag team match, in, you know, opening yeah. early you know, tag team match in Memphis. It's just so amazing how many times these wrestlers cross paths as they were charting the territories. Wow. Yeah, this is a really, really cool article, too, because it, it's it's it's. It's like, you know, a lot of the magazines and their articles, they're so written from such a, a kayfabe standpoint that it doesn't even, it's, it's laughable. But this one, it's, I don't know if it's because Lou Sahadi was really good at, at paying attention to, you know, what the wrestler's gimmick was. Because it's just fantastic because it, it plays into everything, every, 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 you know, all the subtleties about his, his career and how he, yes, he is Muslim, like, like Muhammad Ali, but there are different, different, uh, you know, different types of Muslim. Like one is the, one is a Sunni Muslim and the other, I forget what the, yeah, there's all these little details that are really cool. That you don't normally see in, you know, some of the, some of the other articles. I just was really, really fascinated by this, this article. So I, I, I shared it with you and I hope we will post this because I yeah, think it's a really, we'll, really, we'll really post cool this. article. It's a, it's a long article and there's several really uh, good pictures of Hussein in action. But speaking yeah. of pictures and speaking of someone you just mentioned, we'll also post a picture of, uh, and this came from a mid 1970s Pacific Northwest photo album, but this is a picture oh, yeah. of Arman Hussein and Muhammad Ali. Yeah, that's a great photo. Together. Too. But you mentioned that uh, Hussein was a Muslim 
in real life. And this was one of the things that was interesting to me was that he was a babyface in most places as a Muslim. Now, granted, in this era, black wrestlers yeah. are almost always babyfaces. Not always. There are some exceptions. But by and large, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're babyface wrestlers. But this was the other thing that amazed me when I first started researching the McGurk territory. <clears throat> was that Akbar, Skandor Akbar, was a babyface in that territory for many years. It was because he was from the local area, but still that they, you know, someone named Skandor Akbar was a babyface. And here, someone named Arman Hussein was a babyface for most of his career. So, listeners, yeah. hopefully the takeaway is professional wrestling in the territorial era was slightly less racist than you've been led to believe. <laughs> I don't want to say was you know was completely was way less racist, but slightly less racist than you than you've been led to believe. So it's got that going for it, which is nice. Um, but you know there were there there were still stories of wrestlers who collected Nazi memorabilia, uh, both in tribute and perhaps uh, for other reasons as well. Which is one yeah, hell of a segue yeah. to get to the next That's person we want to talk about. And that is a manager. And we mentioned him earlier uh, at one of the things Rip Tyler did as far as uh, pushing himself once he was made Booker was to give himself a manager. And the manager he gave himself was Homer Odell. Now, Homer had spent mm -hmm. most or all of 1973, as well as probably years earlier in Mid-Atlantic. He had been managing Rip Hawk and Swede Hansen. I will assume that his departure may have been tied into uh, George Scott coming in as the booker. I don't know this for a fact, but uh, we mentioned previously that Rip Hawk left the territory not long after Scott came in, although Hawk would come back later in 74. But Odell left as well, and he ends up here, or at least he's in some of the towns here, because I can only confirm that he's managing Rip Tyler in the Louisiana towns. Interesting. I don't know that this doesn't mean he wasn't managing Rip in other places, but I just I don't know that for a fact. Uh, again, as we've talked about a few times, the Louisiana towns uh, fall under the purview of Grizzly Smith at this point in time. He's got uh, a little bit of leeway to do, uh, you know, his own thing in some of the smaller towns. He's got, you know, he uses uh, what we'll call a B crew and that's where he has the wild and crazy stipulation matches uh, in places like Loranger and Homa with some of the upper mid-card and mid-card talent because he doesn't have access to uh, a Hodge or a Mantel or, you know, uh, the top guys. He takes these mid-carders and puts them in crazy gimmick matches. So it's possible that Homer Odell in this territory was only in the towns that Grizzly Smith booked, but I'm not sure. But Homer Odell... As I say almost every month in this podcast, in a business full of crazy, messed up characters, <laughs> Homer Odell was even crazier and even more mixed up than the others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he he's a, another guy, too. Yeah, he was a general, uh, or he, at least in his own mind, he was a general. And there's a story, <laughs> and Jim Cornette has uh, mentioned this a couple of times. There's a story that at one point, Homer Odell was arrested for shooting into a lake in North Carolina. Uh, and, yeah. and he believed he was shooting at Nazi subs. Now, yeah. that, he's not on the coast. He's not shooting into the Atlantic Ocean. He's shooting yeah, into cool. a lake somewhere in uh, yeah. the middle of North Carolina. I don't know how a submarine 
could get there, but Homer apparently thought uh, he's onto something. Homer liked guns, and there's at least one occasion where he brought a gun to the ring with him. And if he did it once, he probably did it all the time. But there's another story uh, where... It's Bob Orton Sr. and I think Boris Malenko, which which I think this yep. means it would, would be in Florida. But they're uh, no. leaving. No? Or yes? This is in, I, I, know, I know the exact story okay. you're talking about. Uh, it, Richmond, Virginia. Richmond, Continue, Virginia. Sorry. So that's Mid-Atlantic. So as they're leaving the ring, a riot breaks out, as often happened in the 60s and 70s in the Carolinas and Virginia. And in order to uh, disperse the crowd... Homer Odell reaches into his pocket, pulls out a pistol, and fires a few warning shots into the air. Just yep. enough so that the crowd dispersed and Orton, Malenko, and Homer Odell could uh, retreat safely to the dressing room without being mauled by the mob. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a crazy. I think like Malenko was stabbed during this, this riot, too. So it, it's like, at, at some point, like Malenko got stabbed and they were like trying they were trying to fight their way to the back and i think orton gets knocked out so he's like so malenko is holding orton by his foot dragging him trying to drag orton back to the locker room with basically like his fingers holding his stomach together <laughs> <laughs> and that that's like that visual is amazing like i, I was reading uh, an interview of, of, with 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 Bob Orton Sr. about this, and he's like, I probably would have died that night if it wasn't for Homer Odell. Yeah, <laughs> I, I you know I have a feeling, yeah, and you hear stories about this frequently, maybe not frequently, but occasionally of wrestlers that would bring a gun with them, and a lot of times it wasn't for the crowd. A lot of times it was to protect themselves against other wrestlers. Um, but I have a feeling more wrestlers, or particularly managers, carried you know weapons with them when they were at Mm -hmm. ringside. Uh, Now, the gun would not have done Homer Odell any good in the story that Dave Drayson talks about in an interview with Jim Cornette. Uh, Dave tells a story about Homer Odell managing in Ontario and falling asleep during the match. Uh, As the match began, he pulled up a chair, sat at ringside, (laughs) and fell asleep. And when the match ended, the yeah. ringing of the bell signifying the ending of the match woke him up and he just walked on yep. into the ring, held up his guy's hand and walked on off yeah. as if nothing happened. <laughs> and Cornette shares another great story about an angle in Memphis involving not only Homer Odell, but Armand Hussein. And this is on oh, yeah. YouTube and we will be sure to post a link to it on my Twitter account, but this is a match with the angel and brute Bernard against Armand Hussein and another wrestler. Uh, Odell is doing commentary. And then after the match, he comes in and he starts painting a yellow uh, X across. I think it was supposed to be a yellow streak, but it ends up being two uh, streaks uh, down Hussein's back. But then a bunch of baby faces hit the ring, make the save. And then they dump the bucket of paint, a small, a small paint can over Homer Odell's head. And Cornette believes that portion of it, like at first they take the paintbrush and paint his Odell's face. But then uh, I think it's uh plowboy Frazier uh, takes the whole can and just dumps it over Odell's yep. head. And, and Cornette seems to believe that that was not part of the original plan. <laughs> <laughs> that that stand just got a little carried away. And he and Jim talks about how right after that, Lance Russell is interviewing 
Homer Odell. And every time Odell, you know, moves his body, paint flies off onto Lance, poor Lance Russell, who is trying yeah. to be the Kermit the Frog uh, to all the Muppet badness ensuing yep. around him. But uh, Odell's history with guns don't always involve him as the holder and shooter of the gun. Uh, and this was something I posted oh. on Twitter last month, June 17th, 1974. The High Point, North Carolina Enterprise runs an article entitled Wrestler Homer Odell Shot at Party. And yeah, he's billed as a wrestler, not a wrestling manager, but uh, his age in 1974 is listed as 48, but uh, he was shot in the stomach at a party after suffering a 22 caliber pistol wound. Cook said Odell was wounded while attending a party at a cabin on Lake Norman. I wonder if I wonder if the Nazis surfaced and someone, you know, got him. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on there. Well, uh, no, it apparently it was not a Nazi because the uh, someone was arrested. and His name is Edward Monroe Hartzell. Uh, he yeah. was charged with the shooting and placed under ten thousand dollars bond in Iredell County Jail. He's a Odell's like another guy. It's sort sort of like Armand Hussein, like like one of these legendary guys who no one knows that much about their their personal life. Like I've I, I, I've tried to go back and find like, oh, was he ever a wrestler, or was he always a you know a manager who did the wrestling occasionally, or was he in in a previous you know previous version of of Homer Odell was he a wrestler? I found. You know, the first time I find mentions of, of Homer Odell, it's like April 62, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, working for Stu, managing a, a gentleman by the name of Count Alexis Bruga, who is Bronco Lubitsch. Um, uh, and interestingly enough, right before that, there's results for a wrestler by the name of Strangler Odell in Wisconsin and Michigan that go back to December 61 until February 62. Uh, not a manager slash wrestler, uh, not a wrestler manager, just just a wrestler named Strangler Odell. And then he disappears in the middle of February. And in April, you see Homer Odell in Canada. So I'm wondering if Strangler Odell was could be Homer. he'd have been in his he'd have been in his mid 30s at that point in time, somewhere between 34 and 36, I think, based on the age given in this 1974 uh -huh. article. So it's possible. Uh, that he was a wrestler before becoming a manager. But he's part of that, you know, the parade of managers at this point in time in the late 60s, early 70s, that there's just no footage of, but that people that were there that have passed on stories say that all of them were so good. And there's guys like J.C. Yeah. Dykes, Saul Weingeroff, Homer Odell, even George Teuton Harris. You know, every territory had one, and some territories had more than one manager like this. And... You know, this wasn't the beginning of managers, but for a lot of the territories, this might have been the first time they had regular managers. And, and all of these guys are, were reportedly really good at their jobs. Yeah. But, you know, it's, we have no know, way of knowing. Yeah, yeah, it's like I been transferring all those UWA reels that I got. Like, there's some great footage on those, but I was super excited to find, you know, Dr. Ken Ramey on one of the reels. Yes. Just to see Dr. Ken Ramey come into the ring, do his thing and sort of like give like these weird devil horn hands, you know, it's like, oh, it's, it's just seeing footage of a guy like that is, you know, there's hardly any. So it was great to see him. He's one of those guys. I'd put him on that list of guys. There's not a ton of footage out, but you hear are legendary, you know? Right. 
And a lot of them managed the same guys in different places. I think Raimi and Dykes both managed the Infernos at different times. I know uh, Raimi yep. also managed the interns. Um, Intern. You mentioned uh, Bronco Lubitsch. Uh, Odell was very well known in the late 60s as managing uh, Lubitsch and Aldo Bogny. And then, as I mentioned, yep. in the early 70s, he's managing Rip Hawk and Sweet Hansen, the Blonde Bombers. Now, uh, another reason Homer Eldell might have left the Mid-Atlantic region has to do with something I found in an article in the Danville, Virginia newspaper entitled The Bee uh, from oh, August 18th, 1973. A professional wrestler from Charlotte, North Carolina, has been arrested in Richmond and charged with felonious assault in an incident that occurred during a wrestling match here July 27th. Homer Marion Odell, 45, was charged with felonious assault on Philip Stewart Ellinger, 16. Oh, my. Yes. <laughs> so apparently during, during a match, something happened, and uh, Odell allegedly struck the youth with his fists. And the youth oh, wow. was a youth. He was 16 years old. So uh, he was arrested. So perhaps this uh, sped up Homer's exit from the (laughs) Mid-Atlantic Territory and forced him to uh, take refuge in Louisiana working for Grizzly Smith. Yeah, there's also an article that you found from the 1966 Asheville Citizen Times uh, entitled The Other Side of Homer Odell. So, John, tell us about... Homer Odell's other side. This is by the sports director, Bob Terrell. He describes Homer Odell, you know, the, 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 the orneriest, which is a great adjective, the orneriest, uh, meanest, downright dirtiest wrestler since Mr. Moto. Uh, and he talks about it, he carries the cane, wears the tux, da da da, bosses the team of wrestlers named Bronco Lubitsch and Aldo Bogny. Um, so he's at the, the Asheville Weaverville, Weaverville Speedway. And he sees this big, handsome man, which I've never heard Homer Dell refer to as a, as a handsome man. Uh, but he refers to a big, handsome man standing in the pits, wearing white trousers, cowboy boots, and a shirt with a large red and white checks. His jaws sagged a little, the corners of his mouth turned down, his hair was brushed back and streaked with gray. And the way he carried himself, he cut a striking figure among the grease monkeys in the pits. So he watched them for a while, doesn't recognize them. And, you know, after a while, he's like, that's Homer Odell. And he's like, impossible. That can't be Homer Odell. He's, he's too mean for this business. He's a, he's a wrestler. But it was. Like, there can't be another one like Homer Odell. And then he notices uh, a tattoo that he had and a, and a knot on the side of his head. <laughs> so he's like, oh, Wednesday night, I'll find out. So he goes to the uh, city, city auditorium on Wednesday. And he sees the identifying tattoo on his arm and the bump on his face. So afterwards, he goes downstairs and approaches approaches Homer, which seems like a bad idea, generally speaking, uh, from what we know. And he says, Homer, what the heck were you doing at the Asheville Weaver Wolf Sunday? And he's like, oh, at the races? I was tending to my car. <laughs> Your car? Yes, he's a race car owner. Uh, number 95. Looks like 96, but it's 95. That's mine. A 1964 Ford. He's like, what are you doing with the race cars? Like, well, I got tired of watching television on Sunday. Told my wife, I'm going to find something to do on Sunday. I look for something exciting like wrestling. So I bought me a car. And now I'm having the time of my life. <laughs> so it's another another side of uh, 
Homer and all that we didn't know about. Yeah, I I had not heard this before. So yeah, we'll we'll post that article as well as the other stuff we talked about, and really give a listen to uh, it's on YouTube of Jim Cornette and Dave Drayson. Uh, telling some great oh. Homer Odell stories. There's some. I, I don't want to, you know, spoil everything because I want our listeners to listen to the whole thing. But there's really a whole lot of great things to listen to there. So that's Homer Odell oh, yeah. managing Rip Tyler. Now a little further down the cards in Oklahoma and Louisiana in early 1974, we have the Mid Carters in the territory, and they have a spot rating between .40 and .60, and they include Don Duffy. Alpha and Sika, the Samoans, Buck Robley, Sung Young Kang, Mr. Ito, Pierre Martin, George Strickland, Bill Ash, and a few others. And uh, we mentioned last time we covered late 1973 that Bob Backlund was here as a rookie. He finished up here at the end of February and then started in Amarillo in March. And you had mentioned when we talked about Bob that uh, Terry Funk was the one who had uh, pretty much given him an open invitation to come to Amarillo. Uh, and Bob took him up on it and then he got a nice little push in Amarillo. And that was the uh, really kickstarted his career. But you'll find a whole lot more on the blog about the first three months of 1974 in this territory. And it includes the advertised lineups for 201 known house shows during that 13 week period. So that's an average of over 15 a week. And it's not complete. Uh, we're, we're still missing yeah. a, a decent amount of show. I'd say for, at this point in time, we're probably around 85% complete or so. Um, so 201 shows, if that's 85% complete, that means we're missing uh, a good, you know, 35 to 40 or so house shows. Wow. Maybe a little less, maybe more like 30 to 35. I'm I'm doing this math really quickly in my head. But uh, 201 house shows in this period of time, I'd say this territory in Mid-Atlantic are probably running the largest number of house shows um, not including Mexico, uh, CMLL is probably running a gajillion. Uh, they're they're running you know multiple shows per night every night of the week. Some of their top wrestlers in Mexico are double shotting during the week, not just you know an afternoon show and an evening show on Sunday, but they'll you know they'll work in you know the second match on one show on a Monday night and then drive to the next town and and you know get out you know, literally pull up right as they're being introduced for the main event. So, but as far as this point in time, I believe it's McGurk and Mid-Atlantic are the two most active. I would say the WWWF is probably next on the list. And then you have a lot of territories that are running uh, two shows a night. Uh, at this point in time, this is this would cover. Oh, and oh, I'm sorry, Goulas. I forgot all that Goulas. Goulas is actually probably the most active. They're running three and four every night. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is. It is mind boggling how many shows Goulas ran through uh, up to the mid 70s. Uh, they've got, you know, they're running Alabama, Tennessee, parts of Kentucky, Arkansas. But they're running, you know, they're just running you know, small, small shows with crews of six guys every yeah, night yeah. of the week, along with the uh, Memphis and Louisville and Nashville and Birmingham and Chattanooga. They're running a couple, if not more, smaller towns every night of the week. 
It's just mind-boggling. Gulf Coast is probably running two a night most nights. Amarillo is generally running two a night. East Texas is running one a night. East Texas, except for, I think, Fridays and Saturdays when they run smaller towns with split crews. Uh, But they were, Mondays were, uh, Mondays and Tuesdays were Fort Worth and Dallas. Wednesdays were usually San Antonio. Thursdays were were alternated between Austin and Corpus Christi. Fridays was Houston. And then Saturdays was two smaller towns with a split crew. Um, Gulf uh, AWA is one or two a night. I think Dick the Bruiser is one a night. Central States is one or two a night. Pacific Northwest is one a night, most every night. Um, same with Southern California and San Francisco. They're generally one, you know, one show per night territories as are Stampede and Vancouver. Hmm. What about Florida? What do we have? Florida, Florida at this point in time is two, is two a night. And, nice. uh, Mondays are Orlando and West Palm beach. Tuesdays are Tampa and Fort Myers. Wednesdays is Miami or Miami beach and Lakeland. Thursdays is Jacksonville. And I think th- that's a uh, one one show that night on Thursdays. And then Fridays is Tallahassee and West Palm Beach. Saturdays are spot towns. And then the occasional uh, big show at the Bayfront Center in St. Petersburg is usually every six weeks or so on Sundays. Gotcha. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Like the, the you mentioned the, the WWF and it's a it's such a frustrating example to 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 because for, for for a lot of reasons you know number one it's a monthly territory not a weekly territory um and i still feel like we have a lot of results for them but for being you know who they are i still feel like there's a ton of stuff missing there has results. to be one but one of the interesting things about that territory and one of the reasons i don't chart it uh, as much as I do ones in the South and, and other places, is that all the Northeastern-based territories, so this would be the WWF, um, Bruno, at the time when Bruno's thing in Pittsburgh was separate, we'll include that, um, whatever Pedro is doing in Buffalo, the Sheik, and Toronto, a lot of those territories are sharing main event talent. Think about yeah. the Sheik and Bobo and even Bruno uh, so many of these, the top guys will work the big shows in each of those territories. And in the case of the WWWF, the preliminary wrestlers are geographically based. Uh, there is a yeah. crew of underneath guys that generally only work in New England. There's a crew of underneath yeah. guys that generally only work in Western Pennsylvania and then there's another crew that works only in, you know, the tri-state area of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And then there's another tier of traveling preliminary guys that like Steve King, uh, you know, guys that are working most every night, the uh, house yeah. show somewhere. So it's really hard to chart it because the, uh, so many of the main inventors are part timers and are shared with other territories. Especially this time, this too was like Bruno was all over around seventy four too. Like Bruno's working for, you know, he's working with Dick the Bruiser. Uh, you know, he's all over the place. So it's 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 it's, it's so tricky. So so yeah. um, so, know, so uh, because it's, it's, of that, it's it's hard to know what we don't know as far as estimating the number <laughs> of shows we're missing. Um, yeah. 
because we would need, you know, we would need to find, you know, all of Bruno's records, not just all of the WWF shows, but all of those wrestlers, we would need to find all their dates in the other territories as well so that we can find what days were missing. And the same thing yeah. with the preliminary wrestlers. So many of them only worked when shows were, you know, closer to them, that them not being booked on a particular night doesn't mean we're missing a show. So then, and when I started this thing years ago, a few years ago, I really thought that for every territory, I not only would be able to pinpoint exactly how many shows we were missing, but that I could also guess, guesstimate the lineups. So Hmm. for example, if you, let's say a territory is running three shows a night and we have the full lineups for every show in the week, except one we can look at who's not booked and see who our main eventers that aren't booked are, who our mid carters are and who our prelim guys are. And we could probably do a very good job of guesstimating what the card looked like. But as it turned out, because so many preliminary wrestlers didn't wrestle a full schedule and a handful of the top main eventers didn't work six, seven nights a week, their absence doesn't necessarily mean that we're missing a show. If all we're missing is, you know, Bill Watts and three preliminary guys, it's highly unlikely, although I could see them running a show in the middle of nowhere with, a, you know, two singles yeah. and a tag. And the appeal is, hey, get to see Bill Watts and three other schmucks. So I can't yeah. disprove the existence of such a card, but I can say it seems unlikely. Yeah. And where it gets even more confusing is in central states. Because not only do they have their regular crew of wrestlers, but a small crew of women's wrestlers were based out of uh, Missouri. And this is Kay Noble, Jean Antone, Betty Nicoli, and at times one or two others. And Lord Littlebrook is based in St. Joseph, Missouri. Uh, so yeah. anytime, uh, you know, there are some little pe- little persons that aren't booked in another territory, Central states can always just slap them on a card. And I've seen yeah. cards in spot towns that are literally two, two singles matches in a mixed tag, but involving women and little persons. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, again, we have no idea how many cards that look like that or that had, you know, one upper mid carder and two women and one prelim guy. And they just did two singles in a mixed tag. So, as much as I thought we'd be able to know exactly how many were missing, I now have to ballpark it. And every time I find more and more cards, I actually have to upwardsly revise what I thought we yeah. you know, had. <laughs> if I thought you know, we were 80% complete, as I find more, I might say, well, now, even though I have more, I now think we're only 75% complete. Yeah. Uh, so it's a never-ending quest. Yeah, it is. It really, really is. Oh. Yeah. And, uh, you know, these are the stats that uh, interest me. Uh, So many people want to know about titles and attendance records and was he a good worker or not? I'm obsessed with these stats. And that's why I literally invented these stats. And, uh, you know, when we first introduced the FLW stat at the beginning of this year, I looked at numerous territories at different time periods just so I could get a good feel for what a good number is. And as we mentioned earlier, Anything above a three is pretty good. And another thing I did with the FLW stat was I decided to look at Johnny Valentine's biggest feuds during his big run in Mid-Atlantic. He came in 
in late 1973 as one of the first newcomers to come in under new booker George Scott. Got a huge push, won the uh, the promotion's singles title from Jerry Briscoe as Briscoe was uh, leaving for Japan. Uh, and then Briscoe came back from Japan. They did a series of rematches around the horn. Valentine held on to the title and then Briscoe left for Florida. But I used my FLW statistic to measure the three biggest feuds of Johnny Valentine's run in Mid-Atlantic. And I think most fans that are familiar with Mid-Atlantic and familiar with Johnny Valentine can guess two of them pretty easily. And they are Paul Jones and Wahoo McDaniel. But the third one might be, not only is it a surprise, but it actually had the highest FLW score of those three feuds. And there are some extenuating circumstances. So if you haven't listened to the latest episode of Stats 101, that will tell you the uh, the three biggest feuds of Johnny Valentine's run. I also have a post on the blog at chartingtheterritories.com, which looks at how all three of those feuds played out in some of the weekly towns. I actually looked at it for four of the weekly towns, I believe it was Charlotte, Raleigh, Columbia, and Spartanburg. I might, might be wrong on one of those, but uh, it's interesting in that what we think of as far as feuds playing out with matches, you know, for several weeks leading to a blow-off, that's not the case for a lot of these feuds, particularly the one with Paul Jones. It plays out over a much longer period of time. Uh, and in some towns, the feud begins in 74. In some towns, it's, you know, literally eight months, a year later. There's no consistent huh. bicycle like we always thought happened. Huh. Again, that's that's part of my, you know, using these stats to disprove the old wives tales of professional wrestling is... Yeah. This concept of feuds and wrestlers being married and wrestling each other every single night for, you know, a month, two months in a row straight. Very rarely is that actually the case. And as a matter of fact, next month on the podcast, I'm jumping ahead, but next month we're going to look at 1978 in the first quarter. And one of the bigger feuds was Paul Orndorff versus The Brute. The Brute, in this case, being Bugsy McGraw. And in Bugsy's book, he says he wrestled Orndorff every night for, I think it was seven weeks straight. Well, guess what? Next month, I will prove that Bugsy's Bugsy's memory was a little iffy, uh, which, and again, there's nothing wrong with that, but they're wrestling each other a lot, but they are absolutely, there is never any consecutive seven-week period where they're wrestling each other every single night of the week. So we will disprove that next month on the podcast. We're also going to have a new episode of Wrestling History Mysteries coming next month. And I got to tell you, at this point in time, what the mystery is, is a mystery. Because I don't even know. I've got it narrowed down to two or three small mysteries oh. I want to cover. <laughs> uh, but as of right now, the uh, the subject of next month's Wrestling History Mysteries podcast is a mystery. So Sorry. hopefully we'll, you'll learn something new. Uh, John and I learn something new every single month we do, we do. this podcast. Uh, whether it be wrestlers we uh, who were in certain places that we didn't know of or wrestling in general. We learn new things all the time. And every month at the end of our podcast, we both name one thing we learned. And this is called This Month I Learned. So, John, what did you learn this month? Well, much how Johnny Valentine loves whips and chains. If you listen to uh, Staff 101 this month, you'll... Uh... You'll understand that reference. Uh, much like Johnny Valentine loves his whips and chains, I like blood. 
uh, in wrestling. I mean, not, not in real life. It belongs on the <laughs> inside in real life. Uh, so when used appropriately, you know, blood can really, for me, really can enhance the, the match. Like any, anything else, if it happens too often, you get burnout on it. Um, and something I always, always take note of, always seem to notice when going back and you're reading these articles about pro wrestling in, in old newspapers and mainstream magazines, uh, is how often, you know, the subject turns to blood, whether it's the writer bringing it up or the, the, the fan being interviewed or a wrestler being asked by a writer about the blood. Uh, you know, is it fake? Is it fake? Is the blood is, is the blood fake? You know, you see that all the time in the old days. Now, in 2022, of course, we're all smart fans. Uh, we know that the majority of the blood that we have seen was, in fact, real blood. Uh, nonetheless, it got me thinking, like, wondering about when the idea of, you know, quote, fake blood, unquote, being used in wrestling came about, uh, that myth. Um, so I'd imagine this would have come from around the same time that blading became popular, right? Like, and, you know, Luthez has a section of this in, on the side of his book, and he talks about it. He sort of ballparks it as happening shortly after World War II. Sure, there were occasions of it happening early, earlier, but just was use that date for the time being. So around that time, you know, there's a lot more bleeding in the matches, um, in the magazines, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think uh, around this time is when you would first start reading about fake blood uh, in wrestling. But this month I learned that the fake blood in wrestling controversy goes back all the way to at least 1910. Huh. 1910. Allow me to read from the March 11th, 1910 edition of the Spokane Chronicle. The headline, Maybury gangs are put on trial. Swindles said to have operated by fake sporting events. Council Bluffs, Iowa, March 10th. Sensational testimony by four government witnesses. The first called in the case of John C. Maybury and others charged with conspiracy to defraud featured in the day's proceedings in that case. The testimony was given by Thomas Gay, indicted with Maybray, who turned government witness, James Coon of Michigan, and Ernest Fenby, a professional wrestler, both, quote-unquote, steerers, and A.E. Nelson, a victim of the swindling operation. Fenby was the star witness. He had received letters from Council Bluff, the authorship of which Maybray had admitted giving to him, uh, letting him in on the full dope of fixed wrestling matches and horse races. He, with James Coon, a neighbor, undertook to steer some friends and were successful in landing three, from whom $14,000 was taken on wrestling matches. That is, I did the inflation calculator, $400,000 in 2022 money. Uh, he explained how a bladder full of chicken blood was burst in the opponent's mouth at a critical moment when the latter would roll over and pretend to be dying. This was the ruse used to break up the match, and everyone scattered to prevent arrest. He testified to having worked the trick three different times. So, yeah, there you have it. Fake blood in 1910. Now, my This Month I Learned, and John, one of the things I always wonder about is when I learn something new, do our, are our listeners learning it along with me, or is it something they already know? And I don't have a way of asking our listeners right now, although if you do listen and want to respond on Twitter, you can let me know if you've heard this before. But John, I'm going to ask you if you know the answer to this question without Googling, without, you know, trying to are just off the top of your head. We mentioned earlier the McGuire twins, Billy and Benny, who had been here for a few weeks in early 1974. Do you know who trained the McGuire twins for professional wrestling? Ooh. 
All right. Well, uh, you might learn something oh, new this month, too. Yeah, I don't. Gory Guerrero. Apparently, uh, so they were doing something with, I want to say Honda, um, but th- this is the famous picture of them riding the, 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 the motorcycles or whatever. They were doing some sort yeah, of yeah. cross country tour. And as they drove through El Paso, they, you know, Gory Guerrero saw them uh, passing by or they were stopped and doing something. And he talked to them and he said, look, if you guys ever want to <laughs> are interested in becoming professional wrestlers, next time you come to El Paso, find me. And sure enough, the next time they came through El Paso, they did. So Gory trained them and their training partners were Chavo and Mondo. Wow. Which so, and, and I don't, I haven't confirmed this, but their first ever professional matches might have been across the border in Mexico. So not only were these guys huge to begin with, but just to picture them in a, in a ring in Mexico where they typically featured a much smaller wrestlers yeah, is amazing. And basically their training, you know, consisted of, um, you know, learning how to stand still while the other wrestlers flew into them and fell down um, and teach them. I think their finishing maneuver was like a steamroller type of maneuver. So they taught yeah, them yeah. just a couple of basics. But yeah, pretty much their gimmick was to just stand there and let the opponents bounce off them, which works perfectly for, you know, lighter weight wrestlers such as you would yeah. find in Mexico at the time. Um so their first ever pro matches may have been in Mexico, but their first ever matches in the U.S. were for the Funks in uh, December 1972. And they weren't battle royals. They were uh, matches as part of a one-night tag team tournament deal that they did with either three or four teams. And what's interesting is the Maguires did not go over. Oh, wow. In these tournaments. And they're wrestling against, you know, the regular full-time, you know, top tag teams which is really interesting for their first matches you would think they would have you know uh maybe you know i guess if they were only trained to work you know to work a certain type of match they might not have been comfortable putting them in battle royals until they had a little more experience actually being in the ring so that might have had something to do with it but another fascinating thing i found out um oh and i may have gotten the year wrong it might have been december of 1971 and not 1972 um, but they also got married in a joint ceremony in El Paso the day after Thanksgiving, 1971. Huh. And researching their careers, I found something fascinating. So they're twin brothers. Um, yep. They were working in Ontario in the spring of 1975. And among the matches they had, they wrestled the following opponents. Pat and Mike Kelly. So that's twins versus twins. Yeah, they wrestled against Alpha and Sika, so that's twins against brothers. Yeah, they wrestled against Angelo and Lanny Poffo, so that's <sighs> twins versus father and son, who at the time were billed as brothers. Yeah, <clears throat> and they wrestled against Hell's Angels, Chris Colt and Ron Dupree. So this is twins versus partners. Yeah. But what an amazing combination of you know of, of opponents for the yeah. the Maguires oh, to wrestle wow. against within a few weeks span in 1975 in Ontario. Wow, that's crazy. I, I still I'm still thinking, and this is what's really troubling me: is the Maguire brothers in Mexico getting Montezuma's revenge in the poor. <laughs> Poor, Ooh. poor, poor restrooms. Well, or, yeah, perhaps yeah. this was, you know, perhaps this was just, you know, just south of El Paso, right across the border. And they could have, you know, made it back into the States uh, uh, for water breaks. 
Maybe I wonder if they, maybe they had a venue. You know, they had a venue that was half in the U.S. and half in Mexico, whereas the concession stand was in the U.S. So you knew the water was yeah. okay. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> next month on charting the territories, John, we're going to look at the first few months of 1978 in the McGurk territory. We've got a redneck, a big cat, an assassin, a doctor, a brute, a candy man, and twins. Oof. Twins that we mentioned wow. uh, just a little bit ago that are not the Maguire twins, but the other twins. Oh. So, yeah, that's coming next month on the Charting the Territories podcast, which comes out on the fourth Thursday of every month. And on the second Tuesday of next month, we will have a new episode of Wrestling History Mysteries, whose subject is, at this point, still a mystery. I will say this. It definitely involves Florida. Oh, okay. That's all. That's all I know. There's a couple of things I'm investigating that uh, happen in the Florida territory. So one of them is probably going to be the subject of the next wrestling history mystery. Uh, throughout this episode, we made mention to clips on YouTube, pictures, newspaper articles, etc. Over the next few days, I will put all of these out on Twitter. So be sure to follow me at Al Gets Wrestling so you can see all of those and all on all the necessary links. Check out our blog at chartingtheterritories.com. And John, uh, for these UWA reels and for other uh, neat historical archived documents, uh, not only from the wrestling world, but also from the music world and from the baseball world, where can our listeners find you? You can follow me on Twitter at j-o-n underscore b-o-u-c-h-e-r on twitter find me there all right anything anything you got uh coming up in the works that uh our listeners should look out for i've got some stuff in the works i got some stuff i can't an- i i can't announce it yet How's it's that a mystery a, a he's, he's, so you've got mysteries it's a, it's a too. We, mystery mystery. yes we both have mysteries so you'll soon. just have to follow us soon. to find them out as i mentioned our blog is updated at least twice a month and new podcast episodes are released on the second and fourth Thursdays of each and every month. And to be the first to know when new podcast episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. We will catch you next month right here on Charting the Territories. John, talk to you next month. See you next month.